Science, exercise, nutrition, health, energy, passion. One year, no beer. This is the One Year No Beer podcast, where you will find all the latest tips, tricks and hacks for a way to live better. Welcome to another awesome episode of the One Year No Beer podcast. So we normally always talk about your alcohol-free journey, and whilst today we will be talking a little bit about addiction and hope and finding hope, um, today's guest is somebody that I have known for some time and have been meaning to do a podcast with for some time. But the recent events going on in the world, uh, the tragic death of George Floyd and the rise of protests around that, really started something going on in my mind. And as I started to look onto this and research a bit more and find out more and more and read some books and read some stories and see what other people were posting, I realized that I am incredibly ignorant. I guess being born in Scotland, and as you'll see in this podcast, only 4% of its population are black, Asian, minority, ethnic. I did live in London for a long time, 13 years but yet I never really understood. I never really understood racism. And for what I thought it was, is actually something very different. So I guess what I'm saying to you is that I'm kind of learning. I don't know what to do. I know that I don't want to be racist and that I know that I believe that all humans deserve a good life. And this podcast is about living a good life. So I hope you'll forgive me if I sound ignorant. I hope you'll forgive me if I ask a stupid question. I hope you'll forgive me if you don't really resonate with something that's said in this podcast. I'm trying to learn. I want to be there for everyone. I believe in love, kindness, and compassion for all all people, for all of the human race. If you're a human on this planet, then I offer you kindness, compassion, and love. It's that simple. And I guess I want to be less ignorant. And also I have a duty. I have a duty as somebody who has listeners, who runs a podcast and has a community to be making sure that I stay educated and I help all of us to live life better. So on that basis, I hope you really enjoy this podcast. I hope it opens up some thought in your mind. I hope it asks some questions about yourself and what you're doing and if you can do anything. And then I hope that we all work towards a world where we can all live life better. Wouldn't that be amazing? Now let's get into the interview. Today, my guest was sentenced to over a hundred years in prison after growing up, surviving the only way he knew how, a life of crime. In prison, he became a gang leader, one of the top gang leaders. During two years of solitary confinement, Andre had an epiphany and started to turn his life around. He taught himself to read and write, learned self-development, left and went to Harvard University. He is now known as the violence interrupter the ambassador of hope and founder of the Academy of Hope. 
Andre goes into some of the worst prisons in the US and talks down gangs, inspires gang leaders to become peaceful, and has negotiated mass riots peacefully in maximum security prisons. Andre, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Andre, um, I've given a bit of a bit of your um, top highlights of this this incredible past. Let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Can you give me a bit of background into your story? I mean, my story is kind of classic at one level of Black American kids in America. Um, grew up, my mom and dad didn't get along. A lot of domestic violence in the house. He leaves the house. You got a single mom with six kids. She's struggling to get by. We go to public school and we're just poor. And it's just that simple. She doesn't have enough time to like dedicate to all six kids. So I fall through the cracks. My brother falls through the cracks. She's trying to do the best she can. By the time I get into school, it's just not the best. I found out in the third grade about 11 years, about 10 years old, I was illiterate. And at that time, they had a thing called a dummy class. But it wasn't a problem that you couldn't read. They just stuck you in the class with a bunch of kids who couldn't read. And they left us there. Luckily, a teacher pulled me out of that room, and she taught me my learning style. She said, you're not a dummy. You just learn differently. By middle school, it's like now you don't have the cool things the other kids have. You don't, you, you, nobody's coming to father-daughter dance, to father, none of that stuff. So it's just it's bad. Then you start wanting the stuff that you don't have, and your mother can't afford it. Your father's not around, so you make the best way you can. You start selling drugs after school. You find a little after-school hustle, as we called it. And that started me down the path of criminality. It's trying to be accepted by the other kids. I had to commit crimes to buy the stuff to be accepted. So it was all about the stuff in middle school. And by the time I got to high school, I was just a mess. I'm out in the streets full time. And I effectively quit high school and just took the hustle all day. And like anybody before me, you spend your time in the street, you run around, you get arrested enough times. So finally they said, okay, you're going to prison. Seven to 10. Two nine to tens, two tens, two fifteen and twenties, and a five is what they gave me years. Sent me to state prison and they dropped me off. And I spent the next six years fighting, fighting, gang banging, selling drugs, extortion. Prison doesn't stop criminals, it just collects them. So if you were a criminal before you got to prison, you're a criminal when you get to prison. So it's just a bunch of us together. And that's where you learn how to be a better criminal. You learn how to be more violent. You learn a lot of stuff. And in the end, it's just, it's craziness. So fast forward, six years I did this. And from there, I had an epiphany one day. I realized um, being a top gang leader in the state was cool. It was status. People looked up to you. But the truth was, I was a king of nowhere. And I was the king of a place nobody cared about was with people just one way to this fadeaway. So I made up a goal for myself to become successful. So I said, I'm gonna go home, become successful. I picked the school called Harvard University. And said, I'm going home, going to Harvard. Everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought I lost my mind. I've never been a drinker or a drugger, but they said he must be on something. <laughs> but nobody could see it, but I could see it. And I believed it. So I set a plan for myself and I stuck to the plan. Step one, I got my GED high school equivalency degree. And step two, I went to counseling. Step three, I went to the law library, taught myself to law. Step four, I started going to anger management classes because I had an anger management problem. And for eight years, I worked on myself. Stop gang banging, stop selling drugs, stop fighting, stop focused on bettering myself. 
So after 14 years, they let me out. And for the last 20 years of my life, all I've been doing is helping people because there were people who stepped up to help me in my transition and it made a difference in my life. So that, those mentors that stepped up helped me get to where I am today. So I'm now by obligation to be a mentor for somebody else. So I go to prisons around the country, around the world. I go to programs around the country, around the world. I help people from Australia to Guatemala, from Honduras to Sweden. I've been too many countries and cities to count. And the goal is simple. How do you help people get better? It, uh, it is amazing. And um, I've heard your story a couple of times. We've, we've met a few times um, before at Genius Network over in the U.S., um, and it's hard to describe to everybody listening out there the presence that Andre has. Um, when Andre speaks to you, there's just this powerful feeling. Um, you, you, you talk straight uh, to people's soul. It's a really powerful thing. I mean, there are many times I've seen somebody crying with Andre in a corner somewhere, and this could be a CEO or an entrepreneur, and they've just caught you for a 10-minute conversation, and you've just communicated directly to them. And we're going to come much more into that um, about how you created or found that gift in yourself to speak to people. But going back into the, 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 your, your backstory a bit, and the question I, I have is, you know, you said it, it is common for um, underprivileged and black to be around that kind of environment. And do you think that you almost didn't have a choice for the life of crime? Was that just like the paved path? Or do you think you had choices but made bad choices? And how do you feel about that for you and for other people? I'm curious. The first thing I would say, underprivileged and black seem to be synonymous mm. in America. So yeah. when you say, well, underprivileged, and it's two distinct different things. But in this country, it's synonymous. Underprivileged means black. If you say, tell me somebody's underprivileged, nine out of 10 people are going to check a black person, somebody might check a Latino. Very rarely you're going to check a white person or maybe an Asian. But underprivileged and black being synonymous is a problem by itself. Or yeah. to tell. So relative to, did I have options? Yes, I had options. And I had options. It wasn't just like there was 1,000% no way out. I had to commit crimes. I could have went to school with dirty clothes. I could have stayed on free lunch. I could have stayed being ridiculed by all the kids in the school. I could have just been an outcast my entire school career. That was my option. <laughs> that was my option to just go to school and let every kid from sixth grade to 12th grade just give me the business, hate on me, crack jokes on me, be mean to me all day long because I don't have the, the, cool, the cool clothes, because I can't pay for my own school lunch, because I can't afford to go to the movies with these kids. I can't, I don't have on a, I got holes in my shoes. So my option was, except as a 12-year-old, complete ridicule from the entire school or catch up. And the only way I could catch up was to commit crimes. So it wasn't an absolute, my life was in danger, no. But as a 12-year-old, there's nothing more important than fitting in. And I could not fit in with what I had, period. There was no, there was, there were, I was never going to be, nobody's going to say, well, Dre's a good kid. We should just let, let him play with us. It was never going to happen. Sixth graders don't do that. If you don't fit in, you're the target of everybody's um, problems every day. You're the target. And I was the target. And the only way to get that target off my back was get them dirty clothes off my back, get them, them dusty shoes off my feet, and to get out of the free lunch line. So that was my choice. 
So I did have a choice, but as a 12-year-old, if you put me back there again, I'd probably choose selling drugs to be accepted versus I'm going to stick this out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So the choices are there, but they're so minimal. And they're also, you know, it, I, I've seen one thing I want to mention is just how much um, learning I've done over the last 48, 72 hours, not just in getting you as a guest on, but obviously what's going on in the world. And again, we're going to talk about that and how ignorant I have been um, overall to racism. I think how ignorant we all are. And this is why I wanted you to come on the podcast so that we could talk about exactly, um, exactly this. The we all being white privileged people and just how privileged we are. Um, this, this is my thing with the term privilege because people get that confused. Privilege doesn't mean you were born rich. Privilege doesn't mean you went to a private school. Privilege doesn't mean that everything came easy for you and you never had to suffer or you, maybe you were in a free lunch line. Maybe you had dirty clothes and dirty shoes too. Life is hard, but your life is not hard because you're white. My life is hard, plus it's hard because I'm black. When you walk in, you can be the biggest, homeless, craziest hair, stinkiest guy in the world laying on a grate for six years straight, doing nothing. If we take you to a barber shop, get you a haircut, put you in a suit, and put you in a briefcase, you're accepted. I could have been in private school since birth, and I'm still gonna be questioned. So the privilege isn't what you have tangibly, physically, monetarily, it's just being white. No one's gonna question you. Are you a good person? I have to prove I'm a good person. A white person doesn't have to prove that all the time. There are circumstances where you have to establish yourself, but in every scenario, or most every scenario, I have to prove that I'm not one of the violent, crazy, out of control, lazy, whatever you categorize black people. And a white guy in a suit, nobody's asking where he was last week. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, the, it's, the, it's the system. It's the, the system. It's the societal advantage or disadvantage by being black. And this is what I've been awakened to, um, uh, you know, thinking, and, and we are going to talk about this, so we're jumping around, but that's always me, um, thinking that racism is making a joke or saying something, but it's not. It's actually the system. The system is racist. It is unfair from the get-go because of the way it is set up. And all of these things that happen inside our brain you know, when I, when I look at a group of five black kids across the street and instantly I think, oh, I feel unsafe, versus if you just saw five white kids on the street, you wouldn't even bat an eyelid or think. And that's all part of the system. We are programmed to feel that fear. We are conditioned to experience that. And it's been so insightful to start learning this. Mm -hmm. I used to swim. And I became a good swimmer. You know, I became a good swimmer. I kept getting in the pool. So when you say you're conditioned, so you have a choice to allow the condition to go forward or to say no. So I personally don't listen to heavy metal music. I can, but if you, I listen to it long enough, I can get conditioned to get used to it. I don't really listen to country music. But if you put it on long enough, I can get conditioned. But I have to agree to listen to it for a long period of time to become conditioned. You yes. just can't snap your fingers and condition me to country music. I can't snap my fingers and make you conditioned to uh, ignore racism. You've agreed over time to say, you know something? I'm just going to agree to ignore it. 
if you did so intentionally or unintentionally or consciously, but I can't subconsciously say I'm not black or not be black or be blind to racism. I don't have the option. It's not a, you're a bad guy, I'm a good guy. I just don't have the option. I can't opt out of not having to deal with racism where other folks can. Mm. Yeah. We're going, to, we're going to talk more about that soon. Um, so talking specifically about crime, what do you think it is that makes somebody commit a crime when you speak to somebody okay, about let's that? Take, let's take Andre. Andre committed crimes because Andre needed to get stuff to get up to speed with the other kids. I did not have, and I did not see a way of getting. So for me, not, I can talk about million people, but for Andre, it was a lack of having that forced me to do crime. I didn't just wake up and want to be a bad guy one day. I woke up and didn't want to be ridiculed one day, again and again and again. And so let's back up. Crime starts from, and I'm the guy, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade with extreme learning disabilities in the sense of not disabilities, I just wasn't learning. I didn't have disabilities. I just was like written off. So education, had I been an educated kid, had I actually been up to grade or been up to speed, I might have been able to think of different options. But me being undereducated, me being behind everybody else and being poor made it that much worse. So I couldn't connect with people on academics. I couldn't connect with people in programs, not the school stuff. And I couldn't read that well. So if you educate people, they'll stop thinking on their own of different solutions. I had limited education, which gave me limited solutions in my mind. Yeah. So we balanced the educational system. That will diminish crime itself because most people who are committing crimes don't have money or don't have hope. So if you lost $10,000 today, you're not going to go rob a bank or sell crack. You're going to say, no, sir. you're going to sit down and come up with a plan and a strategy to start a new business, launch a new plan and do something and grow that money because you have the skill set slash education to do so. If I don't have that skill set and education, but I still need 10000 what do I do? Mm -hmm. In my mind, I have to get it. In reality, I need to get it. And the truth is I can't get it through honest means because I don't have the education and insight to do so. Yeah. On that note, though, do you feel like the education is set up? I mean, you're a part of Genius Network. You see the kind of education that goes on for entrepreneurs. You see the kind of learning that we get versus the kind of learning we get at school. Do you think really the education from that perspective is right? I'm not going to compare it to Genius Network. That's adults and kids. I do private school and public school. My son, black kid, goes to private school. Me, dad, black kid, went to public school. We, my son, right now in 2020, goes to a private school. We just had the pandemic. All the schools in the, in the world were shut down. Kids were sent home. Before my son stepped foot in that school, I was, I was forced as a parent to buy him the latest phone with some iOS code. I was forced to buy him the latest iPad, and I was forced to buy him a laptop. Those were three mandates before he got off the bus. If your kid's coming here, he needs these three things. And I needed an iPad with the draw pencil. It wasn't just an iPad. I had to get the so I had four things I had to send my son to school with day one. Because their school was able to send him texts and lesson plans, and it's all tech technology. So when their school closed, my son didn't miss a beat on being having access to his teachers. 
having access to his classwork, having access to his classmates. Now, my school was no technology. All the public school kids went home, they just not getting taught anything. They just completely in the dark. They were not set up or geared to do any type of education beyond in-person. So all the public school kids, majority of them, got sent home with nothing. Mm. All the kids from private schools or from better schools got sent home with technology. So um, tell me about your epiphany. You're, you're um, one of the top gang leaders in a maximum security prison. Um, you've got a reputation to uphold. People have expectations for you. How did this epiphany come back, come about? And w- what happened? What happened, I was in solitary confinement for trying to kill some people. And I was just given an additional 10 years to my sentence for two attempted murder charges I was convicted of while in prison. And I was sat in solitary confinement for two and a half years. Towards the end of my solitary time, some friends of mine had gotten into a fight and a dispute, and I was going to retaliate in my unit. But before I could, God spoke to me. And God told me, Andre, don't do this. Life choice. I got mad, and I said, God, why are you speaking to me? Because all of my life, I said, there's been no God. My mother used to get beat to the floor. There was no God. When I went to school as a kid, white kids stood on the side of the road and threw rocks at a bus and called us niggas. There was no God. And I went to, I can just go down a list of times that I saw no God. So I'm like, why are you bothering me? Go find your people, because evidently I'm not one of them. And me and God had this big argument. And he was like, this is a life choice. And at the end, I went back to my cell. I didn't hurt anybody that day. And I came up with the plan to go home and go to Harvard. I didn't go to the cell. I didn't start speaking in tongues. There was nothing floating. There was no smoke of voices. It was just that brief encounter gave me a chance to reflect and redirect myself. And I took that redirection, and I went down the path of becoming successful. And it was a long walk because the, the hardest part was all my friends and a lot of my family were going the other way. Mm. Because they thought it was gold at the end of the road, and it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just a lot. And it's just more of more pain. I figured a lie out, and I turned around, and now I spend my entire days trying to convince people not to go down that path. I live two minutes from maximum security prison. I go in there every day. When I get off this call with you, I'm driving down the street. I can almost walk to work, and I'm going inside the prison and I'm talking to guys in real time because people think Andre, you're wonderful. Andre, you're so helpful. Andre, you turn stuff. I got a whole building full of people who have the same capacity, have the same skill set, but the world doesn't see them as valuable. You mm. see me as valuable, but you're not going to say, well, where did he come from? Well, he came from, I came from prison. And there's a, lot of more peop- there's a lot more people in prison who are as gifted, if not more gifted than me. But nobody's saying, let's tap into that resource. They're saying, leave them in there. Yeah. Throw away the key. Right now. The riots right now. You have police officers on the front lines dealing with rioters. I, and you're putting their lives in risk, and it's more conflict. I would dare to say, if you got the gang leaders from my prison or prisons around the country, and you compel them to stand in front of them rioters, they would do a lot better at turning this around. Because they speak from a place of knowing? They speak from a place of knowing. And they're the people that people look up to. When I, was in, when I was on the street, when I grew up, in my book, there's a guy named Dominic Williams. He was the coolest guy. He was the biggest guy from my neighborhood. He was like a god. Had Dominic came on and said, you guys need to shut this down. 
I would have, I would have done it. I'd have done it. Whatever Dominic said, I'd have done. Hands down, no question. But they didn't get Dominic. They sent a, they sent a white state trooper. They sent somebody I didn't have any relationship with. And the people that the folks in the street have relationship with, they're not making necessity. Mm. So you're gonna so, risk a cop's life. I'm not saying you should risk a prisoner's life, but it's a lot less risky using the people they look up to versus the people that they don't get along with from the start. Who they identify as the enemy or the oppressor. The guy who killed the black guy was a cop. Hundred percent. Have to calm me down. Doesn't work. No. The cop killed the black guy again. And in the black community, we've never seen them as police. We saw them as occupying forces. They weren't here. To, they're not, we don't perceive the police in the black community as here to help us. They are here to manage and make sure we stay in this little box called the ghetto. And we don't go out into the suburbs where you live. Keep them wow. here. Keep them boxed in. There are neighborhoods that we know better than to go in as kids because they're rich white neighborhoods. If you walk through a rich white neighborhood, you're gonna get pulled over, police gonna pull up on you, you gotta justify why you're there. Just because I'm black. And we don't know black people, even though the fact that no black people live in the neighborhood shouldn't matter because it's still America. Yeah. You can't yeah, there's... walk through a nice white neighborhood as a black man. The, the reality of that is crazy and how that system, and I think, in a way, a lot of our listeners are UK-based, in fact, international-based. And, you know, I think there's a tendency to, whenever we're looking at a problem, is to disassociate it from us. So we say, well, you know, racism isn't really here in the UK. It's not as bad as it is in the US. And I see people posting about this. And um, we see... Yeah. How many black politicians do you have in the UK? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm just a question. Of all your, your Congress, your Senate, your, your, your Parliament, how many black members of Parliament are there? Not many. It'll be, distri- it'll be disproportionate. You see, interestingly, that, that in England and Wales, uh, 14% of the population are black, Asian, and minority, uh, minority ethnic, uh, but make up 25% of the prison population. So very disproportionately... And interestingly, in Scotland, 4% of the population is black, Asian, and minority ethnic, um, which is absolutely tiny. Okay, well, in America, we make up, there's 12 million blacks in the country. Let's make 50% of them men, to split it down to even, that's 6 million blacks. Then let's just say of the 6 million black males, let's just say half of those are of 18 to 50. So that's 6, that's... 12, 6, 3 million black males. 3 million black males. I'm not going to say Michael Jordan's in that list. Charles Barkley, Tiger Woods is on that list. 3 million black males make up 70% of the country's prison population. Yeah. Out of 3 million, is about 700,000 locked up. That's beyond disproportionate. It's just awful. Yeah. That's systematic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you had your epiphany, you came out and you really focused on, on improving yourself. And obviously, you know, in prison, people had this identity of who you were that had been trying to pull you back into that. How did you, or did that not happen? Did you 
clean cutaway. People wanted me to stay where I was because they were comfortable. I yeah. could avoid misery loves company, all those things are true. Mm. And the biggest part was, and this is bigger with my family as well as my friends, if he makes it, what is that saying about me? Why am I not making it? Yeah. One of the biggest things that I had mm. with interesting. folks back in the city is, well, Andre turned his life around and he says he made it. Why can't I? He had no education. He had a bad upbringing. He lived in the same neighborhood, lived in the same house, had the same issues. But he managed to turn all of this around and fix his life, which says it's fixable. Hard work attacks, but it's fixable. Yeah. So it's, not, it's not predicated on me having Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant skill set. I just wanted to work hard. So I didn't need a rich uncle or to be 6'8". I just had to work hard. And if you work hard in this country, you can overcome racism. You can overcome poverty. You can overcome disenfranchisement. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. But there's a magic ingredient that you need. And I, this, is what you, this is what it makes you so passionate because this is what you, you do now in going to speak to people. That magic ingredient that helps somebody turn around to then apply themselves hard work or to change their life. I'm guessing that's hope, but tell me about, tell me about um, what you do now and how you go in and speak to people and how you get to turn around people. What I understand is having been, this is the connectivity. There are people who are oppressed, there's people who are underserved, there's people who are neglected, and it's a certain type of pain. And that pain produces, if focused, a certain type of person. You can grow a great person out, out of pain if if this, if the guides are there and the mentors are there. Let's take Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, as a young man, used to rob people, beat up people, snatch pocketbooks. he go to juvenile detention, and he's fighting every day because that's what he did. He was a fighter. And then finally, somebody said, instead of sending Mike Tyson to solitary confinement for the 20th time, they sent Mike Tyson to the gym program that they had. And he went to the gym program, and a guy put him in the ring. And the first guy knew enough to know he couldn't help Mike. So he called Cus the model. And Cus lived nearby. Cus came by and looked at Mike. And he said, Mike, let me explain something to you. I'm going to turn you into a heavyweight champion. Mike Tyson, being from the inner city of New York, not very literate, not very educated, and a fighter his whole life, he's like, what are you talking about? I beat up people for a living. What are you talking about? Nobody talks to me and does anything for me. They just asked me to do stuff for them that is wrong. And Custom Model told Mike Tyson in that conversation, I'm going to make you heavyweight champion. And he said, I just need you to trust me. He trusted him, and lo and behold, they're one of the most fierce heavyweight champions ever. And that's, but you could think about it. Mike Tyson doesn't meet Custom Model. What is he? He's just another thug in jail. He had the ability, but he needed the mental. There's a lot of people who have the ability, they just don't have the mentor. So I go on the, two years ago, there was a riot at the prison where I worked. Seven men were murdered, 30 were injured, and they didn't know what to do. So they called me, I came in, and I rounded up all the top gang leaders, influencers, religious leaders in the state, and moved them into one unit. And I started teaching them how they can apply their leadership, how they can achieve greatness. And we went 13 months with no fights, no weapons, no murders. Wow. The same way Mike Tyson walked out of that juvenile detention center, 
became heavyweight champion of the world, I, I'm getting people to walk out of these people right here right now have the ability to walk out of it and impact the country. So That's amazing. People who speak direct, who get it, who have the experience and sensitivity to actually engage and connect. So um, as well as doing that, um, speaking into prisons and gang leaders, you also, um, and this part of what you do, but also with Genius Network, you have gone to uh, people who are suicidal or heavily in addiction um, in, in, a, in, a, in a difficult place at the, and, and yet talk, pulled them back. How are you talking to them? What, do you, what, is, it, what is it you're doing? I, I talk to everybody for starters, but a lot of the times when you see me, I'm talking to white folks. And my, my situation with white people is you take somebody who's depressed, on drugs, suicidal, whatever the thing is, they're expecting the, the stereotypical response, let's take them to the doctor, let's take them to the clinician, let's take them to the site, let's give them some meds or whatever the scenario is, let's send him someplace. The guy with the khakis on and the blue shirt shows up and tries to talk to him. And what they don't understand, if it's you, if it's a teenager, you look like they're somebody that identifies with their parents. And they're not siding with their parents, so they automatically discredit you. They're not listening. When I show up for the juveniles, for the young, for the teenagers or young adults, I look nothing like their parents. <laughs> I sound nothing like their parents. I don't resemble their parents. So they're like, oh my God, he's different. So just because I don't resemble the white kid's parents, I have a leg in. And they identify <laughs> if they're on drugs with oppression, bad treatment, and neglect, which automatically pushes them in the line of understanding somewhat what it's like to be black. So we have a connectivity point there in suffering. And then I have experience and I speak direct. I speak the language of their pain. You take a, a middle-class mom who's never used drugs, never been poor, never been through any hardships, and now you have a daughter who's out here struggling through addiction and all the stuff that comes with that. Mom can't speak that language. I can't. And mom, when mom speaks, it wraps in all the 18 years of conversations this child ever had with mom. The kid can't separate this one conversation from the other 5,000. With me, is separated, is equal, and it's off to the side, and they can listen. And the key thing is, I don't represent and remind them of the thing they're running from. They're generally not running from black people. So whatever their pain was, if somebody molested them, if somebody beat them, if somebody neglected them, somebody didn't show up for their birthday, somebody, whatever it was that happened, it's like a 99.9% .9 chance a black person didn't do it. Mm. had anything to do with it. So they don't associate me with their pain. Whereas they associate their parents or whoever they think is the person with their pain. So it makes it easy to have the conversation because it feels like it's an authentic offline conversation. And that, then I'm able to penetrate and break through with my communication skills to actually get them to talk. I spent 14 years surrounded by hardened criminals who were masters at hiding their emotions, masters at deception, masters at lying with the intent of trying to murder you. So I'm walking around a prison with two, 3,000 people who are up to no good all the time. And I have to be smarter and think faster. Now you put me in a room with one 16-year-old kid who doesn't know how to hide his emotions, it's all on his sleeve, and his problems, even though they're big to him, aren't big to me. But I can walk them through that. In prison, I have to know what they're thinking before you do. 
So when you put me in a room with a 15 year old, it's not even fair. I can hear their pain. I can see. I can just summarize it all up in their movements and and how they move and how they speak. I can start touching the pain points without them asking questions or having to ask certain questions that are embarrassing. I just answer, give them their answers. Wow. Getting them to talk, being absolutely key and hearing their pain. I love that. So if somebody is listening, um, as, as they will be, and they're in that cycle, and they won't be considering it addiction, but um, perhaps resetting. They've tried doing this alcohol-free challenge with one year no beer a couple of times and reset and reset and reset. And, you know, they're blaming themselves because they can't seem to get control over this. And they're feeling full of self-loathing and regret, etc. What would you say to somebody in that situation? I'm going to use a Keith Cunningham quote. If you want a great idea, the best way to get it is have a bunch of them and pick one. If your one great idea is one year no beer, that's great, but it's a standalone. So, okay, I'm going to do one year no beer, and you, I'm going to do one year being more sensitive. I'm going to do one year being doing child's mom. Just don't let that be your only thing. So I'm going to send my mom a card every day or a text every morning. I'm going to send my kid a I love you text every morning. I'm going to make breakfast for the wife. Small, a lot of small things. So you got this one big thing, no beer. You need a lot of small things to, to train you because you're going from zero to a thousand real quick. And it's not, it's not easy. You're going back and forth. Whereas if you have a lot of smaller things, you build a path. One pebble is just a pain. A thousand pebbles a pathway. So, I like that. So with that, building a lot of small things that you know you can do. I'm not going to watch TV in the morning. I'm not going to check my social media feed till 9 o'clock. And then what happens is you have this whole consortium of doing new things, not just this one, I'm not going to drink beer. You're all day long doing everything you've always done. Then at 6 o'clock, you call me, oh, I can't do that one. And you have no track record. You have no momentum in the saying no or doing something different. So you need to create a lot of doing something different, and it will train the brain to being different. Then the benefit just becomes one of, not the only one. Because if you yep. set it out by itself, it looks crazy. You put it in a group of other things, maybe not as hard, it looks, it looks, looks a little bit better. I like it. And breaking absolutely what we do is getting people to break it down into small bite-sized chunks and lots of good healthy habits um, while, they're, while they're doing it. So I love all that. Um, so, um, yeah, why do you do addiction outreach? I do addiction outreach because kids are dying. There's no two ways about it. Um, I watched some relatives struggle with addiction. Some relatives really close to me, and it was hard. And it was part of the reason I wasn't where I was supposed to be because other people weren't who they were supposed to be that I should have been relying on. And it's, it's one of the hardest things to have an addict in your family because it affects the whole family, not just the addict. I'm saying so. I want to see kids free of addiction, live their best life, and go out and do things because to get to this George Floyd thing, it's the next generation that doesn't carry the biases and lessons that we have. My father grew up in a town in a time where he was just, uh, every bad name you can think of, you would call blacks he was, just because he woke up. My father wasn't allowed to be born in a hospital because he was black. Him and all his brothers and sisters were born at home in a house because blacks weren't allowed to be born in a hospital when he was, when he, when he was born. So 
that's a whole traumatized. Imagine that. You can't have your kids in the hospital. Crazy. Your wife's pregnant. You're like, oh, got to have it at home. No medical equipment. Yeah. You got to keep your kid up. If he makes it, he makes it. If he don't, you don't. So that's where my father came from. And you can't unlive that experience. And he comes to me. Now I'm having a variation of his experiences with my own. I get rocks thrown at me. I'm in the dummy class. Now here comes my son. My son doesn't have 100% of my issues and 100% of my dad's issues. He's clear of that, but he has his own, so it lessens with generations if it's directed correctly. So we need this generation to rise up and be strong because they're going to lead us out of this. Not the old-minded, I used to be a racist, but I reformed myself. No, my father's no. a racist. He'll be a racist the day he dies. My father does not like white people. I don't care. I don't care what he tells you in public. I'm going to tell you what he told me in the house. He does not like white people for the way they treated him his entire life. Yeah, I imagine. On, he watched his father treated horribly. He watched his mother treated horribly. He was treated horribly. And it, I'm talking about 20, 25, 30 years of his life. This was his reality. No, no cultural classes making that go away. So he's going to go to his grave with a lot of animosity and distrust of white people. So it's a fact. And my son doesn't have that level of animosity and distrust. Your son's not going to have that level of animosity and distrust because he's not going to live the way my father lived. So his mind is open into a different space, and I, your kids and my kids can move forward without the problem with blacks and whites in the country is, is slavery hasn't gone away in the minds of the adults. Again, like I said, my father grew up, so my father's grandfather was a slave. So you take that, you imagine your grandfather being a slave. Yeah. And, and, and he, the lessons he's telling and teaching you. So now my son is four generations removed from that. His grandfather wasn't a slave. His grandfather's grandfather was. So the trauma that comes with that has not been removed yet. Yeah. Now, the trauma and... You go. Think about it. If you, have, you have people who are 85 years old. So back in the 85 years, and look at the times. What was the world like 80 years ago? Very different. Black people 80 years ago. So that's what they're still carrying. Yeah. Yeah, so the, there's going to be no quick solution. Um, but the, the solution is educate, educating. And not just education for um, black kids, not just education and good education or fair education for all so that they can then have the power to, to improve their lives, but also education to white people about racism. And, and this is why I wanted to do this podcast is to be a part of that education, educating myself and educating people, like just opening the doorway so that people want to go and say, well, hang on a minute. I'm, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist, people might say. But you are racist because you're part of the system. I'm not and, going to say, no, okay. say because you're part of the system, you're racist. And this is the thing with my... Involved in racism, then. You can benefit. I benefit from being black. When I walk into a gym, I get credit for being athletic. I might not be athletic. So I might benefit from my color. There's, there's extremes, and that's what we want to stay away from. The extremes of because you're white, and you haven't stood up and decided you're a racist. I'm not saying that. And this is my take on racism. There are racists in the world, my father being one of them. It's okay. 
you can be a racist. It is completely okay to be a racist. I have zero problem with a racist. My thing is, if you're a racist and you happen not to like black people, do not join the police force and go work in a black neighborhood. That's my thing. You can be a racist. Hate me because I'm black. Hate me because of my culture. Hate me because I'm tall. Hate me because of whatever. Just don't join the police force and come down as your job mandate to protect me because it's not going to be possible for you to do that. You need mm. to become a cop and go work in a white neighborhood. It's like having a pedophile being a teacher in a, in a, in a, in a school. You would never have that. You would never have that. So I don't need you to not be a racist. I need the racist to not work as police in the inner cities. Mm -hmm. I'm so cool with racists. It's fine. I dealt with, when I was in prison, I dealt with the Aryans. I dealt with the Mexicans. I dealt with a lot of groups, Dominicans who just don't like blacks. I'm cool with that. But when your mission is to not like us, then you want to govern us. Then we run into, don't become a, a court judge and go sit on the bench in the inner city where you're overseeing black folks. Now you're putting yourself in a position to not just be a racist, but to tear down a whole generation of people. I'm yeah. with you being a racist. Knock yourself out. But just don't become a cop and knock one of us off the planet. Well, I want, I, 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 <laughs> what I want, what, what I, we're all about living life better. This is about living life better. And what, what I want is I want to be involved or I want to inspire people to live a better life wherever you are from. And so I want to help create this awareness of racism, but more specifically asking you, somebody listening to this po podcast. Leave the racism part alone. The racism isn't the problem. It's mm -hmm. when the racist takes the job as a cop. You can stay home and hate me till you're blue in the face. It don't bother me. It don't bother me that you're in your home not liking me because I'm black. It only bothers me when you become a school teacher and refuse to teach my students, my kids. When you become a cop and you choke my son out and give him a false charge. That's when it bothers me. When you become a district attorney and you want to give my son 25 years for a stolen pack of gum that he may not have done. That's what my problem is. I can't, you cannot stop racism. So let's stop that. It's like someone gonna take violence out of the world. Not gonna happen. Racists will exist in some capacity. We are okay with that. How do we screen them out of certain jobs? That's all. Fair enough. Might mean trying to get rid of racism, you'll be here for a million years. <laughs> you got a better chance of bringing the dinosaurs back. So, and if you, what can you do to history to study? If you went back to slavery in America, say slavery started at eight months in, eight months into the first wave of slavery, if you went around to all the slave camps and took a poll of all the slaves and said, who wants to vote to end slavery? Every slave would have raised his hand. You can come back in five years. Now that they got settled in and polled all the slaves, who wants to end slavery? All the black people would have raised their hand. Black people saying they want to end slavery didn't end slavery. Black people not being in agreement didn't end slavery. It was when Northern whites stood up and said, we disagree. Did slavery come to an end? The slave revolt, Harry Tubman ran 100,000 people up north, didn't end slavery. Nat Turner turned and killed a bunch of people, didn't end slavery. There's been a thousand revolts. They took over Haiti, ran off the people off the island, didn't end slavery. Slavery didn't end until the white folks from up north, the liberals said, no more. Whatever the mm -hmm. reasoning was, I'm not even asking. 
When white folks in the North said no more, that was a catalyst to end slavery. It was never a poll of the black people. So here we are again, we're asking black people, do you want to be oppressed? We're asking black people, do you want this bad schools? And it, we don't have the voice. Let's keep, it, let's keep it really basic. We don't have the voice. I think this time, I hope, and this is not just my awareness, I've seen more conversation. I've seen more um, leaders talking about it. And whether those are leaders of communities like we are or leaders in it, but I think there is a bigger conversation being had globally right now. And I, I want to firmly believe that that means we are taking a step towards change. And, and for me, I'm going to educate my kids. They're young. I'm going to make sure that I'm passing this across to them so that, that they are thinking about what they can do. Because I, I actually think that we can go a long way to changing racism um, over, the next, over the next generation. That'll, 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 as we have more mixed races, couples, and more mulatto kids, and more inter- that's going to just, over time, will wear itself out. Just by proxy. There was a time when you didn't have black people in your family. You didn't have Latino people in your family. You didn't have it. Now everybody's in everybody's family. You go to Tennessee, where it used to be a whole row of white folks, now it's white and black folks, or white Hispanics. So time will fix the, the cultural part. What we have to fix is how we're handling it right now. So I, yeah. I don't need an ally. I need an abolitionist. <laughs> yeah. No, they talk about allied nation. No, I need abolitionists. Let's end the oppression the same way they try to end slavery. You've ended slavery. Now let's end the slave-like treatment. What do you think about the um, the riots and and what's going on at the moment? I don't believe I don't believe in looting. I am a firm supporter of entrepreneurs. I believe entrepreneurs should be at the table, not politicians, because politicians' sole job is get reelected, whereas entrepreneurs' sole job is get something done. So if you gave me a choice of a politician or entrepreneur, I want an entrepreneur at the table. So when you, you loot, you're hurting entrepreneurs. And those are the people we need at the table speaking for us on our side. You say, hey, Drag, you 20 politicians or 20 entrepreneurs? I'm taking entrepreneurs every time. Because we will, the entrepreneurs will get something done. Politicians will have 20,000 meetings to get nothing done. And, um, but do you think that the message is being heard? The message is being heard. The biggest message was we've had scenarios in the past where black people have died at the hands of police. And the videos, it's sad that we need a video to line up. We had a gentleman a few months ago who was jogging through the neighborhood and two white guys ran him down and they murdered him. And when the police came, they told the police, oh, he looked like a burglar from two weeks ago. Not he had a TV, not he had a DVD player, not he had nothing. He looked like a burglar from two weeks ago. And that's why, and he resisted whatever the hell they were trying to do, and we had to kill him. The cops let them two people go home. Now, if me and my brother would wrestle you down in the street and kill you, shoot you, and then the cops pull up and say, what happened? Well, he looked like a burglar from two weeks ago. We going straight to jail. Yeah. Don't pass go. Death sentence is coming. You Two black guys kill a white guy, and their story is he looked like a burglar from two weeks ago? Are we going straight to jail? But in America, 
you can do that, and they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, maybe he was a burglar. Maybe if you know me, you know the work that I do. That could have been me on the sidewalk. And had mm. it been me, they would have, the, the, the media would have dug into my files and said, oh, he's a criminal. He spent 14 years in prison. He was a gang member. He was this, he was that. And that would have become the narrative, not the 20 years of me helping people. Yeah. The narrative would have been, Andre was a former gang member, former criminal, former bad guy. That's all the police in the DA would have pushed out. When Michael Brown died, oh, he broke in a store. He stole some, some Skittles or something from a store. He, he, he had an argument and he stole from the store. Arrest him, send him to prison. Arrest him, take him to court. Stealing from the store isn't a death sentence, unless you're black. Refusing uh, to stop and identify yourself isn't a death sentence, unless you're black. Selling cigarettes that unlicensed isn't a death sentence, unless you're black. And in this case, forgery, writing a forgery check a month ago, which is a nonviolent crime, isn't a death sentence, unless you're black. I don't believe in the history of America, you can find me one white forger who was killed for being a forger. But if you're a forger and you're black, so is it the black or is it the forger? Yeah. So um, before we finish up, give me a, a, a story of a turnaround that particularly comes to mind um, from an individual, um, uh, how you went about it and, and, and where they are today. I'll give you a story of a turnaround. We all know Michael Brown Jr., who was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, by a police officer, Darren Wilson. And the entire country erupted like it is now. And the whole city, the whole country's on fire. Black Lives Matter was born. And out of that came a lot of things. One thing that came out of that was Michael Brown Sr. lost his son. And he was angry. He was frustrated, he was highly upset, and there's all other stuff. And I became his mentor, and I still am his mentor. When I started wow. mentoring Michael Sr., I said to him, you got a choice. You can be the angry father, or you can be the guy who teaches forgiveness. And he says, Dre, what are you talking about? He says, I said, the world needs healing. The world doesn't need an angry father. You can be an angry father, but the world needs healing. And I sat with Mike and we had discussions over many months and he became a forgiveness coach. And Michael Brown Sr. is now a forgiveness coach and he's been doing that for over a year now. And he's wow. the guy that comes in and teaches forgiveness to people who have suffered loss. And he's worked with me down here at the prisons, he's worked around the country as a forgiveness coach. So, and at the end of the day, his son's still not coming back. That's right. At the end of the day, that cop will never be charged. At the end of the day, the stories will be stories, but his son will still be gone. So you can get to a place of higher ground if you have the right coach and the right guys. So Mike could have just stayed angry with just cause from anybody. Just, yep, yeah, he needs to be angry. Or if you give him the right guidance, he can do way more than be angry. That's amazing. Brilliant, Andre. Really amazing because not only have you turned him into somebody who's accepted forgiveness, but also he is now giving that gift to other people. And, you know, that's just amazing. Well done. Um, so you've got a book out at the moment. Tell us about the book and where can we find it? Here is the book. You come to my house. That's awesome. 
Um, it's called the Ambassador of Hope. You go to Amazon, just put in Andre Norman. It's the only book I have. It'll pop up, and it'll ship it to you. Excellent. Um, thank you very much, Andre, for your time. It's been great to see you again. Thanks for sharing your message and your thoughts. Um, check out Andre at uh, andrenorman.com. Um, you've got some. You got a TED talk. I have two TED talks. One is how to fix the prison system, and the second is black prisons being recruited to jihadist movement to blow up stuff. It's put an Andre Norman TEDx. They'll both come up. And you Brilliant. Listen, Andre, thank you so much for all the work you do. You're amazing and um, look after yourself. Thank you, sir. If you want to transform your relationship with alcohol, find out more about our challenges over on our website, oneyearnobeer.com and join our booming global community. If you are enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a review and give us a star rating of your choice. Thanks for listening to the One Year No Beer podcast. For a full list of episodes and to join in the challenge yourself, head on over to oneyearnobeer.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.